So in his short story, The Capital of the World, Ernest Hemingway references a story about a Spanish father and his teenage son. And the relationship between this father and son have become strained to the point of shattering. And, and when this son, uh, his name is Paco, uh, which is kind of a common Spanish nickname, uh, when he runs away from home, the father comes to his senses and begins this really extended, arduous search in order to find him. And, and as a last resort, this exhausted, desperate father places an advertisement in the Madrid newspaper, um, hoping that his son will see it and will respond to him. And the ad reads like this, Paco, please meet me in front of the Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. And as the story goes, Ernest Hemingway describes the mob in front of the Hotel Montana where there are 800 young men named Paco, all seeking the forgiveness and reconciliation of their relationship with their dad, which is both comical and tragic at the same time, much like Hemingway writes for the most part. Reconciliation is such a powerful idea. it's, It's the notion that you can take two things that are completely out of sync, even opposed to each other, and bring them back into a state of harmony. Uh, it's, it's the hope that you can undo the natural entropy that happens in all of our relationships, that natural breakdown that happens. And instead of things breaking down, that you can shore it up, that you can strengthen it, that you can restore and grow a shattered bond with someone. That affection can be rekindled from the ashes of coldness. That, that loyalty can grow out of the ruin of faithlessness. It's a powerful and a very necessary idea in our lives. And it's something that's so tied to what God is doing in humanity and so tied to the nature of who God is that, that Paul, in, in the second letter that he writes to the Corinthians, he names the entire focus of everything that he does as a missionary and an apostle as a ministry of reconciliation of bringing people back into that life-giving state with their Creator and their Savior through Christ Jesus. And then he kind of expands that idea and says, if we're followers of Christ, then we also are about this ministry of reconciliation. Because when he says, you know, I have been made an ambassador of the reconciliation of God, he then turns around and says, and Christ has given us this ministry of reconciliation. And that us is a very all-encompassing us. That us is everybody. Anybody who claims to follow the name of Christ, yes, of course, we're about the business of, of, of working to be returned to that life-giving state with God. And, and obviously, it is something that we are unable to do on our own. It is a supernatural thing, right? But when we are returning to that life-giving state with God, you know, the other thing that we get to do is we get to participate in the supernatural, We don't just become recipients of the supernatural. We participate in it. We become ministers of that same reconciliation. We are about bringing people into that life-giving state with God through the power of the Spirit that is working in us. And a big piece of bringing people back into that right relationship with their Creator is bringing them back into right relationship with each other. And so the work that you and I do on our relationships with one another, the work that we do on helping people be in right relationship with one another, those are life-giving things. Those are Christ-filled things. That is the ministry 
of reconciliation. And I guess we should also then realize that by its very, very definition, reconciliation is incredibly difficult. It's not easy. And I dare say that while we can make many attempts at reconciliation, we can fabricate many facsimiles of reconciliation to humans, true reconciliation always has its roots in the supernatural. It is beyond even our best efforts as humans by ourselves. Like I said, Paul is just as quick in 2 Corinthians 5 to place the power of the ministry of reconciliation firmly in God's ability, not in ours. We get to participate in it, but we're not the source of it. We get to, we get to take hold of it and we get to use it, but it doesn't come from us. It originates from God, it is perfected in Christ, and it manifests through the Holy Spirit's presence living in us. That's the only way that any of us are reconciled in our relationships at all. See, the reason that we titled this series in Philemon Hard Conversations is because it's full of hard conversations. It's hard for the church in Colossae to realize and perceive how their attitudes need to change as a church how this issue is more than just a problem between two people. It's something that needs to be redemptively reimagined by the entire church community. It's hard for Paul to write the way he does, delicately and without the clout of his being an apostle. Um, But instead appealing to the sacrificial love of Christ as a model for this letter and the recipient's actions and attitudes. And now as we look at Onesimus, as we look at the bearer of the letter who's who's coming back to the church who's coming back to Philemon and who's coming back with a whole lot of baggage that needs to get dealt with. We have to realize how very, very difficult it is to be in the position of desperately needing reconciliation and how great the sacrifice is in order to seek it. I'll just start right now by saying I do not know how to imagine myself very well in Onesimus' shoes. Okay? I have a certain idea about slavery. Um, I, I have a certain idea about it that's, that's colored from my understanding of growing up in the United States and what slavery has looked like in our history and, what, and the baggage that we carry. The baggage that we still carry. Okay? You don't, you don't have to look very far. You, you, know, you can look in Jefferson, Missouri. You can look in Alabama right now. You can even, I mean, there are, even, there are even tones of what's going on in Chattanooga this week that can be colored by how we've treated other races as the result of slavery and, what's, and, what, and what the response and what the outpouring and what the effects of that have been. It's, and so it's hard for me to even pull out of my own understanding. And this, this is one of those things that's very difficult for us when we look at the Bible, is how are we able to, to, to pull out of just our own understandings of what the Bible says, our own, our own picture that we create, and go back and say, okay, what was going on there? What, how, how would I imagine myself in Onesimus' shoes? There are some things about slavery that are very different there, but then there are some things about slavery that are very much the same. Um, and, you know, one of the things that's very, very interesting, and I had somebody bring this up to me like last week. They said, okay, I, you keep talking about him as a runaway slave that's taken something. Where is that? I'm not seeing that in the... Li- I mean, they weren't, they weren't being jerky about it. They were actually being like really like... I. Are you? Do you have like a different translation than me or something? Because like I'm not seeing it in there, okay? And guess what? I've got news for you. It's not in there. 
we're only looking at one half of a conversation, if that, when we're looking at a letter that Paul writes. We're only looking at the part that he's responding to, right? And so there's a whole other piece of this conversation that we're having to look in the gaps of the letter. We're having to look in the places of the letter in order to figure out what's going on there. Um, But I think there's a couple of things that we can draw out that'll help us kind of imagine what an Esmas situation really is. Because there are, honestly, a couple of other theories out there that say, you know, he's not a runaway slave. He's just, he was sent to actually help Paul out in prison, and he stayed too long, and this whole letter is just an apology from Paul saying, sorry I kept your guy too long. Here he is again. Could you think about maybe sending him back? Because I'm not done with him yet. And I go, uh, that seems to be getting off a little easy. Okay? There's another theory out there that says that these guys... Onesimus isn't even a slave. He's actually literally Philemon's brother. And that there's something going on in between the two of them that has so ripped the two of them apart that um, he's actually treating him like a slave in his own house instead of as a brother. And so Paul's kind of using some figurative language to basically say, this guy's your brother, you need to start treating him like your brother again. Okay, we could go there, but here's the thing. Those are both really, really easy ways to reconcile how difficult it would be for somebody who actually is a runaway slave, who has found Christ, who is now a brother in Christ of their owner, to come back and be restored. One of the things I found when I read the Bible is it's usually the most difficult reading that's the accurate one. Okay, sometimes the most difficult to understand, but definitely a lot of times the most difficult to apply. If you read the Bible and you've got the reading that makes you go, hey, guess what? That's probably the right one. Okay? <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, and so that's, that's my first reason. The other reason is, like, traditionally, the first sermon on Philemon that we have a written record of is in the 4th century. It's a guy named St. John Chrysostom. Name means golden tongue, means he talks a lot better than I do, all right? But his assumption already was that we're dealing with somebody who's a runaway slave, and he was a lot closer. They're still in the culture. They still know what's going on. It's still during the Roman Empire, and, he's, and he goes, this is the situation. So I kind of trust that a little bit too. But I want to kind of dive into the text here and show you a couple of things that, that, that will kind of let us know that this probably is the situation we're dealing with. If we look in verse 15... Paul talks about this idea of the distance and location between Philemon and Onesimus as being parted or being separated. And the word he used describes a really specific movement. It's a specific movement of one party intentionally moving away from another. It's not like, oops, you guys were walking down the road and, you know, all of a sudden, oh, you realize that you're on this side of the road and he's on that side of the road. It's not that kind of parting and separating. It's you guys came to a fork in the road and you started going this way and you realized that they had taken the other fork intentionally and were, or even they had turned around and gone back to town. Um, they are not moving in sync with you at all. It's an intentional move away from this person. Okay? It's not something that's come between the two of them. One's decided to leave the other. And we've got a lot of data on our shot that actually shows legal records of slaves that are on the run. And this is the word used to describe a flight of a slave under duress. Okay? So there are implications there, and that's a big key. But I think even bigger is verse 18 and 19. 
okay, where Paul does something really interesting, okay? If you look in there, you see this part where it almost looks like the whole letter gets interrupted. You know, he goes, so if you consider me a partner in verse 17, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done anything wrong to you or owes you anything, charge it to me. And then all of a sudden there's this break here. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. And then you probably have like a little hyphen, right? And then it goes back to not to mention that you owe me your very self. It's almost like you could read everything and take that, take, read the whole letter and take that little piece, I, Paul, out, and the letter would read just fine. So why is it there? We know that Paul makes a habit of writing things with his own hand for verification a lot of times. When you're dealing with false teachers, a lot of times you're writing, you're, 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 and, and he uses scribes and people like that a lot to write for him. It would be really easy for somebody to forge a letter and just be like, hey, this is from Paul. Here. And so Paul makes it a point to be like, no, I'm writing this with my own hand, you know, to let you, to say hi. Or, or to verify that this is me and this is the gospel. And, but he uses it in this case in a very, very interesting way. He uses what's known as a chirographin, okay? And really all that means is he uses it to write with his hand. But this is the closest thing you get to an IOU in the ancient world, okay? As a deal between friends, a legal contract between friends, this is as binding as it gets. If you write it down on paper and say, I am writing this with my own hand, I will, mm. This is binding, Okay? Paul would not go to that if it was just if he was just saying, "Hey, you know, you guys really need to get you guys really need to get back together as brothers." If he says that, this has absolutely no place in that. And if he's just saying, "Hey, you know, I'm sorry that I I, I kept your guy kind of long, and and I'll bring him back, uh, and I know he's a little late, but but I'll pay you back." This kind of IOU doesn't fit because the word he uses is not if he's cost you anything. It says if he has wronged you in any way because you've got to realize something that's going on here we talked about it last week the honor system the loss of honor that's going on for for Philemon is, is a big deal in the society that he lives in it can impact him economically it can impact his household he can lose status he could even honestly if somebody finds him weak enough they could even in essence, kind of do a hostile takeover of his household and of his holdings, and basically he could become enslaved. There's a lot at stake for how Philemon deals with this. And Paul, by, by writing it in his hand, is basically saying, look, we're going to find a way to fix this. We're going to find a way to reconcile this, and I, Paul, am going to be working to make sure that this is right. There's something else that's interesting, though. He's saying... If he has wronged you in any way or if he, has, if he has cost you anything, I'll pay it back. Where's Paul right now? He's in jail. Who pays for you when you're in jail in the Roman Empire? You do. Okay? Does Paul have any money right now? No. Does, who, who's taking care of Paul because he doesn't have any money right now? Church. Okay? So in essence, what is he saying? And, th- and there's a real interesting kind of like double... There's kind of a double move going on here, right? On the one hand, Philemon, if he's done anything wrong to you, the church will bear the cost of making that right. Philemon, if you guys can't come to some kind of reconciliation here, the church is going to bear the cost of making it right. Do you see what's going on there? Wow. 
it's like a little reminder tucked in there of like, no, this is this is a serious situation. We need you to do something about it. The reason this is such a serious situation is because of the characterization of slavery in the empire. Okay? And and again, I don't I don't think we can even really understand um, exactly what it's like. But I remember I remember growing up and being told that slavery in the Bible was different, but that it was kind of like better. Um than, than the way that we understood it. I, I Yeah, I know. Like, I look back at it now, and I'm like, really? But that, I mean, honestly, that was kind of the feel, was that, that different than slavery that we understand from our European and American history, that slavery in Bible times was, was better uh, because people went into it voluntarily and that it was more like an indentured servanthood for a set period of time. And if you look at the Old Testament template like Deuteronomy, how it's supposed to be for the Jewish people, ideally, because they're embodying the law of God, it actually would be better. Here's the thing. Um, history tells us that it never really worked like that. Okay? We have no records that Israel ever actually did a year of Jubilee ever, where they went and like freed everybody from their debts and restored everybody's land and did okay if they had did that it would have been amazing it would have completely revolutionized this this concept as we understand it but they never did and so it kind of ended up looking like it did everywhere else and where it looked it wasn't even a model like this in the greater realm of the greco-roman empire where paul operates and where philemon operates and where onesimus operates what we got to understand is slavery was a systemic and brutal reality, okay? It's likely that about 30% of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves during Jesus' time. 30%, okay? That's a lot. And basically what slavery was is it was actively securing and monopolizing an involuntary labor force in order to keep the wheels of production and economy greased in the empire. That's why they had it. It's how they could build. It's how they could expand. It's how they could, you know, it's how they could do what they do, okay? That in and of itself, I'm sure you can make lots of connections and be like, wow, slavery may actually be very alive and well in our world. Do we have ways that we bring people, either either we, either we hoodwink them into it or we involuntarily bring them into states that just are terrible, for the purpose of greasing the wheels of production and economy. Might happen more than we think. Might have more connections to this than we think. But regularly, whenever Rome expanded into new territory, it was to acquire more resources of slaves to build up in the institution. Why did they go out on these big conquering things and bring the peace of Rome? It was nice to bring the peace of Rome, I guess, but realistically it was, hey, the economy is kind of like sinking, so what we're going to do is we're going to get some more capital and capital in the Roman Empire is people because people mean resources and resources mean production and production means the empire stays good and so that's the reality that you're living with in slavery and even if we get past the sensational examples that you know people try to put on like HBO or whatever um, you get to a reality that in in the Roman Empire and slavery a person's not a person they're property they're a valuable investment that should be nurtured, but ultimately was divorced from their identity and divorced from their dignity in order to be incorporated into this communal identity of the empire. 
Onesimus' name is such a great example of this. Okay? Because it's not his name. It's a description of his capability. It means useful. In Greek. He's no longer a person. He's a useful asset in the household. Paul even kind of puts a play on words. He's like, you know, because of because of whatever happened, he's useless to you. But now, through Christ, he has become more useful than ever before because God has actually restored him as a person. See, now there's the problem. There's the problem. Because if Onesimus is now not property but he's a person. How on earth can we reconcile this idea of him still going back into slavery? And yet that, I mean, and yet that kind of really seems to be why he is showing up at Philemon's doorstep is that he's going to, is that he's basically going to say, I'm back, I'm sorry. What do we do with that? There might be the idea that, that he would get freed, but let's be honest, um, freedom was kind of held out like a carrot on a stick in the empire. Okay, even we even we even have examples, and I'll talk about this more next week, I guess. But but of people that were freed, they weren't really freed. They might have been freed in name; they may have carried papers, but they were still obligated to the person that freed them. Freedom wasn't really that free in the empire. So how do you deal with slavery? We, we, we criticize the Bible sometimes, I think, for not taking an active stance in condemning slavery. But it was so systemic. I honestly wonder if Paul or anybody that was writing during the New Testament could have conceived of a world where it didn't exist. I mean, let's be honest. We can try to conceive of a world where it doesn't exist, but does it still exist all around us right now? Yeah. Yeah, it does. It's a little more civilized. It's a little more hidden. Um, it's sitting in the back alleys rather than in the slave markets. But it's there. I don't know that. I don't know that Paul. It would be like us imagining a world without racial tension or without economic exploitation or inequality. We can desire it. We speak toward it. We move toward it. But it feels like it's a picture that's far off and far ahead most days. And so Paul does something really interesting. He reimagines slavery in light of Christ. The best example being in Romans 6 and 7. And he kind of sums it up this way. He says, though in sin we all became slaves to sin. No matter how much we want to get out, the real new option is to become a slave to righteousness through the voluntary sacrifice of Christ, who himself has placed his own person under the rule of the Father. It's not at all like the way you and I think of freedom. But there's an indebtedness that leads to destruction, he says, and then there's an indebtedness that leads to life, and that life is freedom. It's not the absence of obligation that's freedom. It's an obligation that leads to life. And the idea is kind of whose house do you belong to? That's the Christian imagination of the reality of slavery as an institution. Is, is 
you you used to belong to the house of this person or that owner or that empire or whatever, but now you actually have honor because you belong to the house of Christ. And you're serving him. And so it's not you have a restored identity, you have restored dignity, you have restored honor because Christ gave you all of those things regardless of what your situation is right now. And that's been twisted in, it's, and again, you know, it's, it's, I feel like I'm walking on eggshells when I talk about that idea because it's been twisted by culture too. I think I remember the stories of, of how white slave owners would teach black slaves the Bible so that they could understand how to be good slaves. And you're like, Ugh. No, that's not really the point of this at all. The point was for them to find freedom even in the midst of the social reality that to try and just rebel against slavery was going to turn out like the Spartacus rebellions. You were going to get 6,000 people, you know, staked on poles, okay? And so how do you move in that reality? You have to find something redemptive of your identity while you're still in the circumstances of being not there yet but living in a different reality even while this reality that you're living in is broken. God is still making things whole over here. God is still redeeming things here. And one day, it will all be redeemed both here and in the world. Does that make sense? I hope it does. And the point of all this is just to say that even as Onesimus is redeemed in Christ through Paul's influence, even as he becomes a part of a church where now there is no Greek or Jew, man or woman, slave or free, it doesn't mean that he doesn't have to deal with the social reality of his status. And it doesn't mean that his legal status or his perceived crimes have changed. Everything is different now, but not everything is. And now Onesimus has to work on the very, very difficult task of reconciliation. And I wonder what that looks like. When, when you're going back, realizing that if things go the way the world goes, you can either you could either get sold, you could be subject to some kind of corporal punishment, beaten, whipped, branded, things like that, humiliated, or you could just straight up get killed for it. And those are the things that are kind of facing Onesimus. And, and I wonder what it is that, I wonder exactly how long it took Paul talking with Onesimus in prison under house arrest to kind of get him around to this way of thinking of going, you do realize that there are things that are worse than that, right? You do realize that, that as a follower of Christ right now, there are things that are worse for you than that. It would be, it would be running from a chance to make things right. Because you're not just a slave anymore, you're his brother now. And it would be worse for you to run the rest of your life and go to the grave not being reconciled to your brother than it would be to submit yourself to his judgment and him to go the way of the world and hurt you again. It would be worse for you to pass up the chance to engage in the ministry of reconciliation than it would for you to get hurt again. That is a really, really difficult reading of the Bible, isn't it? 
as a really, really difficult reality for you and I. Because let's be honest. If I'm going to engage in reconciliation with somebody, I want to make sure things are going to turn out okay. I want to make sure it's a sure bet before I put myself out there. I don't want to get hurt again. And if I have the and if I have the slightest inkling that I'm going to get hurt again, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to withdraw and I'm going to wait. Or I'm going to just kind of let bitterness take root. And all those things that that person should have said, should have done, the way that they should have initiated reconciliation with me because they're the ones that wronged me. This is a very interesting situation because we can look at Anesimus' situation and realize that he's not all wrong here, is he? It's hard enough for us to humble ourselves and to come in and say we're sorry when we're all wrong. Right? But especially especially if the reason that he left in the first place was because he might have been falsely accused of something. Again, we're speculating. We don't know. But especially if he leaves because of a false wrong and he's looking to see it made right, he's not all wrong, is he? How much... How much harder is it for you and I to have to humble ourselves and seek reconciliation when we're not all wrong? And let's be honest, most areas of our lives where we need reconciliation, you got two parties that are wrong, not one that's wrong and one that's right. And yet it's so very, very difficult for us to put ourselves out there. So very difficult for us to humble ourselves. So very difficult for us to be the first one to pull the rock out of the other person's backpack when we ourselves are burdened by that backpack. That was the whole point of that illustration. Is that, is that even though Onesimus is carrying a huge burden and it's really up to Philemon to remove that burden. Philemon's the only one that can remove it. He really can't, okay? How is he going to start removing that burden? By humbling himself and reaching into Philemon's pack and pulling a rock out. That's how reconciliation starts for us in our relationships. We, we will probably never be in a relationship that is as sensational as the one between these two guys right here, okay? That has as many social implications, that has as much danger to it, that has as much sacrifice involved in it. I, I don't know. Maybe you will be someday, but I doubt it. We're on much more level footing with our relationships a lot of times, and yet those relationships run very, very, very deep. And whether it's with our spouses or with our parents or with our kids or with our, our, our family, extended family, or with our friends or with our coworkers or whoever it is, you know, yeah, we're usually on equal, fairly equal and fairly level ground with them. But that makes it harder sometimes, I think, to seek reconciliation because it's so much easier just in family to kind of let things go for the sake of the status quo. I think it can happen to us in church, too. This is where I think Anesimus' piece of the story really intersects ours, is the need to reconcile when it costs us dearly, when it costs us our perceived freedom or status. Anesimus could have found a life in running away. He could have. And he could have thrown in with people for the rest of his life, just moving and moving and moving and parting away from the problem. 
And, and many of us who have damaged relationships choose to do just that. We run and we keep running. We join up with other outcasts and runners, uh, people whose lives are trapped by their past, who are always looking over their shoulders, who are too tainted with cynicism or bitterness about their situation. People who think that it's been too long or the cost is too great to make it right. To be humble and seek reconciliation is hard. And it's even harder in a church family. Families operate in the absence of reconciliation all the time. Like I said, we don't, we don't want to rock the boat with each other. So we just bury the conflict deep down. We let it fester into a grudge right under the surface. We let it color our relationships with one another. Distance becomes the new closeness. Mistrust becomes the new certainty of the relationship. Dysfunction becomes the new normal. Happens in nuclear families all the time. Can happen in church families too. But this is where the letter of Philemon hits us with a real gut punch. We claim that same ministry of reconciliation as Paul, empowered by the same Holy Spirit, validated by the same sacrifice of Christ, as I said. How then can we be content to live in a relationship of the body of Christ that does not reflect that reconciliation? When has holding a grudge ever made us better disciples? When has holding on to bitterness ever made us more full of the love of Jesus? When has allowing distance to exist between us ever made us more unified as his body, as his church? Humility is difficult. Reconciliation is difficult. I think it's made more difficult in our world because of the fact that we emphasize the individual. We naturally think of ourselves first, then all of us together first. We see examples of abuse that makes it hard to be humble or to submit to the mercy of another. Don't get me wrong, reconciliation doesn't mean just being a doormat, but it does require an emptying of self. It requires a lack of preoccupation with being right that Jesus embodied every day that he was here with us in ministry. And that idea is really foreign to us. In order for love to win out over pride, though, for reconciliation to have its way in our heart, though, we've got to connect it back to Jesus Christ. How many of us, like those 800 Pacos in the street, have a story that involves us desperately needing things made right in our hearts with God? To be accepted, to belong again, to be loved again. And then the Father showed up. And we were crushed because he was this perfect, majestic, radiant, pure father. There was no way that we were the son that he was looking for. There was no way that we were the one that he put that ad out for. Saying, come to me, I will make it right. And then the unthinkable happened. He came to us and he called us his child anyway. He gave us the redemption that we were seeking. He wrapped us up in his arms and said, Come home, all is forgiven. And then this benevolent father asked us to do one thing. As you love me as your dad, go find all my other children. 
let them know that the way that you love them and live with them, let them know through that that they're my child. That all is forgiven for them as well. That they belong to this family too. See, that's the gospel that you and I have been called to. That's the ministry that we've been called to. And it is worth any kind of humbling and any kind of sacrifice that we must endure in order to get us all turned around and going home together. Isn't it?